Welcome back to a new episode of the Disciple Types Podcast. My name is Dave, and this is my brother, Andrew. Hey, everybody. This week, we're talking about James the Justice. Now, Andrew, I remember there being a James the Just, but not James the Justice. Is this the same person? It is, yes. I actually took James the Just and converted his nickname from an adjective to a noun form so it fits with the other nicknames for the other disciples. But there's actually a more important reason that I like the nickname the Justice, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And there's actually quite a few different Jameses mentioned in the Bible, right? Two of the disciples are named James, if I recall. That's right. James was a pretty popular name, and the Synoptic Gospels list two different Jameses as disciples of Christ, but they give them slightly different nicknames. And I hope our listeners will bear with me for a few minutes because this gets a bit complicated, but it's important. So the first James mentioned is James, the son of Zebedee, who was John's brother and one half of the Sons of Thunder duo, if you remember back to the John episode. Mm -hmm. And that is a different James than James the Justice, who we'll be talking about today. We'll talk about John's brother in the next episode, actually. But for this time, we're talking about James, the son of Alphaeus, who is the other James listed in the Synoptic Gospels. But the Gospels really tell us almost nothing about James, son of Alphaeus. So that sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole trying to learn about who this guy was. And what you realize is that the New Testament actually mentions at least five other people named James. Wow who may or may not have been one of the original disciples. Um, so I'll list them out. One is James, the son of Alphaeus, who I just mentioned, and he's the disciple we're curious about. Another one is one of the brothers of Jesus mentioned in Mark chapter 6. Then we have James the Less, who was only mentioned in connection with a woman named Mary, who is different than Jesus' mother, and she's not Mary Magdalene. It's another Mary who may have been Mary Clopas, who was actually Jesus's aunt. Wow. Then we still have another James, who is the author of the book of James. And lastly, there is James the Just, who was the first bishop and leader of the church in Jerusalem. Wow. I love explainers like this, even if I think or wish I knew this already. But that's a lot of Jameses and Marys. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge tangled mess of Jameses and Marys. <laughs> there are six Jameses, and at least five Marys mentioned. But the earliest church fathers tried to narrow things down for us and clarify them the best they could. And they started with the premise that James, son of Zebedee, John's brother, son of thunder, was a different James than the rest of them, which is well supported since he was the first to be martyred. So we know he died pretty early and couldn't be the others. So that leaves us with five Jameses, one of whom is son of Alphaeus, uh, who was one of the 12, but about whom we know very little. So the question we have is, which of the four remaining Jameses might be the same person as that disciple? And so that we can learn more about his personality through studying them. And St. Jerome, and if you remember from our uh, theory episodes, mm -hmm. that's the guy, St. Jerome is the guy who wrote about the Tetramorph being representative of the gospel writers. So you got to love Jerome. And he does a pretty good job making the case that these other Jameses are all the same guy. And his reasoning is impeccable if a bit convoluted. So I'm just going to read what he wrote in 392 AD. So here we go. Do you intend the comparatively unknown James the Less, who is called in scripture the son of Mary, not, however, of Mary, the mother of our Lord, 
to be an apostle or not. If he is an apostle, he must be the son of Alphaeus and a believer in Jesus. The only conclusion is that the Mary who is described as the mother of James the Less was the wife of Alphaeus and sister of Mary the Lord's mother, the one who is called by John the Evangelist, Mary of Clovis. James, who is called the brother of the Lord, surnamed the just, the son of Joseph by another wife, as some people think, but as appears to me, the son of Mary's sister of mother of our Lord, Mary of Clovis, of whom John makes mention in his book. I know our listeners right now are going, uh, what? <laughs> it's like we need a family tree or something to sort this all out. But it ends up being relatively simple after Jerome does the work of tracing all the mentions and all the different New Testament sources. So first off, Jerome was writing because he was trying to prove uh, in part that Mary did not have any other kids but Jesus. Because some theological teachings rely on Mary remaining a perpetual virgin, so it was sort of a controversy at the time. But that's not our focus right now. So Jerome concludes that Mary only had one child, Jesus, but she had a sister who was also named Mary, but of Clopas, and she was married to Alphaeus, and the two of them had four sons, James, Joseph, Jude, remember Jude because he's important, and Simon. And these guys are referenced as Jesus's brothers, but they really may have been his cousins, according to Jerome. Mm -hmm. It could be because they didn't really have that word in Aramaic to describe the relationship that we think of as cousins today. Mm -hmm. So we're going to say cousins. And then we have Paul, who also references James the Just, who was the bishop of Jerusalem. And he says that he was the brother of Jesus. In Galatians uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So the fact that Paul says none of the other apostles except James indicates that James, the disciple, who is the son of Alphaeus, is James the Just, and that James the Just is Jesus' so-called brother or cousin. Lastly, we have James, the author of the book of James, who is identified by Jude, who is the author of the book of Jude, as Jude's brother. We remember Jude is also one of Jesus' brothers— so we can infer that these two books were written by two of Jesus's brothers who were both also apostles, Jude Thaddeus and James. And Jude Thaddeus is listed as one of the 12 disciples as well. Wow. Uh, just wow. Uh, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's totally crazy. But there are two good reasons why I went through that whole thing. One is that I want our listeners to know that I'm not just making stuff up about a guy we know very little about. Uh, I've done the homework, so you don't have to. <laughs> and all of this is available to research on your own if our listeners are so inclined to do so. I'll put some links in the show notes that can lead you to some sources. Uh, but more importantly, I wanted to give a real-life example of a complex logical deduction because James's primary aspect is reason, and this is the exact kind of thing he would love to have a debate about. Uh, if we re remember back to the Philip episode where I talked about inductive reasoning, hmm. where Philip is the master of inductive reasoning. James is the master of deductive reasoning, uh, where you take some premises and you narrow it down, deduct to come to a conclusion. So that's what's happening with all these 
five or six different Jameses were making logical deductions to figure out mm-hmm. who is who. Mm-hmm. So I th- I'd like to think that if James was listening today, he'd be like, okay, but how did you draw that conclusion? Show your work. <laughs> so in honor of James, I'm showing the work. And I just think it's really fitting that to understand James, you first have to go through this really complicated logic problem. It's fascinating to me to think that some of our listeners might be tempted due to temperament to zone out while you were talking and others might be totally engaged and trying to think the whole thing through. Yes, I, I, I love that, how God made us all so different. And so hopefully this would be really engaging for everybody, but in particular, I would think James types who are listening are, are going to enjoy that. But in this case, we're really focusing on that aspect of reason. Right. So now that we've established that these Jameses are all the same person, what can we learn from them, him? How do you know his primary aspect was reason? That's a good question. The earliest mention we get of James, the brother of the Lord, is in reference to Jesus's brothers being skeptical of him. In John, it says, so Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you are doing. For no one who wants to be known publicly acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So initially, James was not a disciple of Jesus. None of his brothers were. And he's basically saying, go somewhere else where people will buy what you're selling. You want to be a big shot? Take it to the big stage. So that, that's our first indication that James focused on reason as either his primary or secondary aspect. It's also an indication that he did not rely on experience. And we know this because he was witnessing these miracles done by his own cousin, and he still didn't believe. So we're looking at reason and tradition being James's aspects. Okay, I see. But which one was strongest in his personality? Is there enough evidence to make a supposition about that? Another good question. To answer that, we have to look at who James became over time versus how he started out. And the two best sources we have for that are the stories of his time as the Bishop of Jerusalem and his writing of the book of James. So we know that James did not start out as a believer or a disciple, but at some point he and his brother Jude became part of the Twelve and followed Jesus. But they're only ever mentioned in the lists. We never actually learn anything about them personally. And they apparently never do or say anything particularly noteworthy while Jesus is on earth. Uh, But afterward, James just skyrockets in terms of his influence and clout in the fledgling Christian church. And part of that could be his blood relation to Jesus. People naturally looked at him as a knowing source. But we also see that James is respected for his wisdom. And we see that most clearly during the council at Jerusalem that's recounted in Acts 15. And to remind our listeners, that's the council at which the church debates whether new Gentile Christian converts have to be circumcised to be saved, which was obviously a painful barrier for someone wanting to join the church. Uh, Yeah, I would say pretty painful. Uh, (laughs) Circumcision was a pivotal part of the Jewish covenant with God going all the way back to Abraham. It was sort of this non-negotiable rite of passage. But you had all these Gentile converts who wanted to become Christians And they were being told by the Pharisees that they had to be circumcised Mm -hmm. as adults, and it was turning a lot of potential Christians away. So Peter and Paul both stand up at this council, and they speak about how important it is to welcome Gentiles and that circumcision shouldn't be required. But after all these speeches, everyone looks to James 
for his judgment on the matter. So this is what Acts 15 says. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So in this passage, we have a perfect look at the way James thinks. He first acknowledges what Simon Peter said but he immediately checks it against the scripture, that is tradition, by quoting the prophets. But it doesn't stop there. He then says this phrase, it is my judgment therefore. And this is key. James is making a judgment, a logical deduction from the premise of the scriptures. And when he says therefore, he's drawing a logical conclusion that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And notice this conclusion is not found in the letter of the law. I mean, if there was ever a founding tradition in Judaism, it's circumcision. But James is asserting that reason can interpret and alter even that important tradition. Yeah, it occurs to me that he's focusing on the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. Exactly. And this is why I call James the justice, because in our legal system in the U.S., justices are elevated above judges. So judges pass sentences on those who break the law, but justices make judgments and interpretations about the law itself. And that doesn't mean that James is throwing the law out entirely. He values the law very highly, so highly that he desires to see its spirit carried out justly. And he still says that we should advise them to follow all the other rules in the law. And this is why Paul calls James one of the pillars of the church in addition to Peter and John because James is a solid foundation for the church. So early on, when the church really didn't have a form, when Jesus was still on earth, James didn't really take the spotlight. But over time, as the church became more of a body and, and needed some more structure, that's when James really started to shine. And frankly, by personality alone, James is a much more reliable rock for the church to be built upon than Peter or even John. But it's interesting because James is the exact opposite of Peter and John. And you often see these types becoming good friends as they balance each other out, like they did at the council, where Peter relays his experience and his revelation. And James then settles the issue by applying reason and tradition. So these three are very strong. They're a very strong team for the Jerusalem church. The dynamic between those three types that you just mentioned is so interesting to me. When we talked about John and Peter, we said that those types complement one another because their primary and secondary aspects are flipped, they're reversed. John's primary is revelation and his secondary is experience, whereas Peter's primary is experience and his secondary is revelation. One of my best friends is a Peter and he tends to look to me to slow him down 
and he often wants to hear my take on things, while I benefit most from his prodding to charge ahead and try new things. And then one of my other best friends is a James. Rather than sharing the same aspects but with contrasting emphasis, this friend directly challenges both of my primary and secondary aspects, reason and tradition, not my native habitat. But we challenge each other in ways that are good for growth, and it works. My friend is constantly challenging me to see things more logically, to back up my assumptions, and that brings us back to James the Justice, who is famous for the phrase, faith without works is dead. Yes, that phrase is often interpreted as James saying that you can earn your salvation through your good works. But that's not really the focus of the book of James in its entirety. He's really talking about this marriage between reason and tradition. That is, the truths that you believe and the works that you do. He's not diminishing the belief part at all. In fact, he talks about wisdom and belief quite a bit. And when viewed through his personality, we can kind of see how James is talking about himself here. His own temptation is to focus on reason at the expense of taking righteous action or following the law. And that makes it all the more important to remind himself and others that both are necessary. And you can sense that it's it's a struggle for him as he uses this, this, this one phrase twice in such a short book. And the phrase is the double-minded. And the two times he mentions it, he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And another time he says, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So we get this vivid image of a person at war with his own thoughts. So his doubts from the very earliest days when his cousin Jesus was performing miracles are still dogging James. Yeah, I think they are. Uh, because reason doesn't just give up once you accept Christ. It's constantly trying to figure things out, process new information, and discern the truth. And there's a lot of stuff in Christianity that just doesn't make obvious sense from a logical perspective. So it's a constant struggle for reason-oriented Christians. And for someone who relies on reason, it's very easy to let your intellect become a source of personal pride. You don't want to fall for the lie, and you want to be the one to figure it all out. But James recognizes this and has this great passage in his book. And I think that we'll close on that because I think it sums up this idea of double-mindedness and also faith, humility, and differentiating worldly intelligence from true wisdom. Uh, so here we go, starting with James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such quote-unquote wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. From where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, like a good justice, I just added that part, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest 
of righteousness. Thank you so much for listening. Andrew and I would be grateful if you'd like and subscribe. Find us on Instagram at DiscipleTypes 4in1. That's with the number 4 and the number 1. And if you need an additional incentive to visit our account, there's a kitten now. <laughs>